It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 93- one three eight one four five six seven or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com we hope you'll take out your bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of god's word on this edition of the virtual bible study and welcome into the virtual bible study it is the virtual bible study for october 8th 2009 we're live on your computer tonight and we're glad that we are we hope you'll take a minute to join in on the program throughout the course of the program tonight. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is here. Hello, Dad. Jacob, great to be with you tonight on Thursday night for our regular Thursday night Internet Bible study group. Uh, we welcome all who are listening, and it really do encourage your participation in our program. We think our program is best when we get a lot of involvement from our listeners. And so, Jacob, tell them how they can get involved. All right. Since our program is better, if you'll participate, we would encourage you to call 877-381-4567. That's toll-free. Or send us an email to questions at collegeview.com. We'll remind you, you can join in the uh, chat room if you're watching us from Ustream.tv tonight. Join in the chat room with other listeners, and you can participate in the program there. Interesting topic planned for the program tonight, Dad. Something that a topic that uh, came, uh, came up during the week, as yes, earlier this week, I got a call from uh, David Stamberski in, uh, in in or near St. Louis, I think St. Peter's, Missouri, just near St. Louis. David called me. He's on our uh, bulletin and email update list, and he had seen something in a recent electronic bulletin that we sent out that raised a question. And he called me to talk about it. And we got to discussing his background. David is on the phone with us. David, welcome to the virtual Bible study tonight. Uh, thank you. I'll make sure we got it. Your... Uh, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, David, uh, when you called me, you had some questions uh, about uh, a bulletin article that had basically suggested we've got to follow the Bible and got to follow it exclusively. And you called to say that you have come to the conclusion that's not exactly so. And as we talked, got to talking, you explained a little bit about where you are religiously. You had formerly been a member of the Church of Christ but you left that, I don't know how long ago, you can tell us about that, and you became a Catholic, and I thought that was interesting to know about, and so I invited you to be with us on the program tonight. We want to hear a little bit about that. What brought you to where you are today religiously? What's some of the kind of things that that you thought about, the, the thought process that you engaged in and so forth that got you to where you are right now? So uh, tell us a little bit about that journey you've made. Well, thanks for the opportunity. It it was not a quick decision. Uh, I was in the Church of Christ for at least 23 years, and I truly believed that I was in the true church. And uh, But as time went on, I saw things and experienced uh, some situations that uh, really made me question um, as far as authority goes in the church, I saw I saw things, for instance, like uh, people could not agree on certain Bible passages. Uh, I saw a, a church uh, uh, divide over an issue of uh, ordaining a deacon because one of the members had 
you know, a scriptural reason in her mind that he should be a deacon, and, and there was uh, a really uh, uh, faction between the couple elders, and they split, and people left, and I thought, well, you know, if this is the true church, why can't people come to an agreement on what the Bible says? And even ordaining uh, uh, deacons in a different congregation, people couldn't agree on whether uh, they should have uh, believing children, if, if they're all should be believing children, or if, say, if you had three, if two out of the three are believing children, and they never could ordain an elder because they never could come to a conclusion if all the children should be believers or some should be believers, others not. And so basically, so what you're saying is in your experience in the Churches of Christ, and I don't think it's a unique experience. In other words, you you found situations where people disagreed on certain points uh, taught in the New Testament. Uh, And again, I don't think your your experience is unique in that. I think probably all of us have been in situations where people had different understandings or different, uh, they, they viewed a Bible teaching different from one another, right? Uh, that's true, and, and and if if you go by uh, the Bible only, uh, like most uh, denominational churches do, uh, the, the fact remains you have a mass confusion out there. Uh, there's there's plenty of churches that say they go by that, but they all have different teachings and doctrines. So uh, I, I found out, you know, there has to be some kind of a some kind of authority out there when two people have a uh, a disagreement over some scriptures, and, you know, you could shoot back scriptures all day if you wanted to to try to prove a point, but there's really no middleman. There's really nobody can say that uh, all you can do is agree to disagree. And there was nobody to say, well, you're right, you're wrong, and uh, like I say, I've, I've seen some congregations just split up over it, and I thought, uh, something's not right. Uh, so that started my journey. Uh, looking not primarily into the Catholic Church, I I looked at different Protestant churches out there, and then uh, eventually uh, I started to study the Catholic faith and came to a conclusion that uh, what they teach, uh, as far as going back, uh, the whole saying, if you're if you're deep in history, you'll cease to be Protestant, and I use that in the sense that you know, as far as Protestant churches protesting against the Catholic Church, uh, you know, at Martin Luther and so on. But uh, that was my uh, conclusion I came to, and uh, it, it seemed like, for me, it, it's it's a right conclusion. So Now, David, you're basically the, what pushed you then in the direction of the Catholic Church is you just thought the Bible was too complicated to understand, uh, that, to, that, you, that, for instance, you and I could read the Bible together, and uh, it would be impossible for us without some other agency for us to understand what the what the scriptures were teaching. Well, well, some things we probably could agree on, like baptism, things of that nature. But like Second Peter three fifteen says, uh, those who are untaught and unstable can twist the scriptures to their own destruction. And so it, 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 it would come to a conclusion within my mind that sure, you know, we can agree on some things, but when it come to when it came to major major decisions in a church, like I said, I, I saw this church divide, and people left it because of this uh, uh, trying to ordain this uh, uh, deacon. Well, let me ask you this, David. Would 
And I think this is an important question to deal with. Do you think that that, in other words, your conclusion that you've reached, that people are just unavoidably going to come to divergent opinions of the Scripture, is that, do you, do you yourself accept that as a reflection upon God's ability to, re, to reveal His will clearly? Where's the where's the breakdown in that? I mean, we're not we're not disputing the fact that people obviously come to different conclusions as they read the Bible. We understand that's the case. Why is that the case? Is I guess is my question to you. Do you do you do you believe that it represents a failure on God's part to make his make his will clearly known, or is it a is it a is it a a human failure to 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 read, understand, and apply what he taught us? Uh, I would say it's I would say it's a human failure because uh, people are fallible human beings. Uh, I can I can uh, give you an example. Like if 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 all of us had a copy of the Constitution of the United States in our home, and all of us would interpret that uh, after reading it and try to pass laws, or you'd have other chaos because everybody would see the Constitution a little bit differently. And I, I'm looking at the scriptures uh, as, as an analogy there that we can look at that book that's, you know, from Genesis to Revelation, it is inspired. But if you don't have an infallible guide in faith and morals to say, okay, this is what it means in this uh, situation over here, um, you're, you're left up to any conclusion. Just like, uh, oh, say the... Uh, the eunuch, you know, he said, how can I understand unless somebody guides me? And um, so he had a infallible instructor in Philip to tell him what that passage meant in Isaiah. Okay, now I want to take what you just said there, David, and ask you. You said we, we need somebody, sort of a, a central clearinghouse of interpretation, so to speak, so that we, we all end up understanding alike. Is that... now? Would that be would that agency? We're going to obviously you think it's the Catholic Church, but it, that agency, be it the Catholic Church or something else, would it have to be an inspired source uh, to give that inter, that infallible interpretation of the Bible? In in, in faith and morals, uh, it would be that that source would be guided by the Holy Spirit. Um. To interpret scripture, uh, to come to conclusions. Um, that that would then necessitate the question: uh, the, What scripture would you reference then that would indicate that there is such an agency that would have that inspiration from the Holy Spirit to be able to understand uh, the truth and be able to legislate it appropriately? Okay, um, now I'm going to give you. Uh, uh, Catholic teaching on that. The Holy Spirit guided the, the apostles into all truth, and they they say, well, Jesus also said, whoever hears you hears me. And so, the apostles, uh, primarily Peter, when he, uh, Christ said, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom, whatever you bind on earth, be bound in heaven, and so on. Peter, the apostles, and their successors, uh, apostolic succession, bishops. And uh, the Pope would be that source, apostolic succession, to where you would have a continuing 
line to help uh, continue the church as it was. You know, I, like I said, it, in the beginning, it, it was mostly spread by oral tradition, the word of mouth. And then later on, as New Testament was written, the books were compiled, oh, around uh, late uh, 4th century into the canon we had today. And so you had this inspired New Testament. But before that, you had mainly oral traditions. Uh, the word was spread orally by the apostles. And so uh, that's that's my take on it. Now, um, you are familiar with uh, Colossians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, talks about this uh, inspired knowledge that it was going to, to cease and it was going to pass away. Um, you believe then that inspired knowledge still does exist today? Not for me. But it does still exist in the world. The inspired knowledge, uh, no, as far as uh, what I'm trying to say is a person who would guide the church would be, I can't say inspired, but I'll say guided by the Holy Spirit. Uh, it'd be like a magisterium to be able to, you know, since Christ set the church up, he didn't leave them orphans, you know, he gave them, he gave them apostles. Now, do you do you have uh, again? Though, do you have a scripture that would indicate that uh, we should be looking for a, an agency or an organization? Yeah, um, I think it's First uh, Timothy three fifteen, uh, where where Paul said, uh, "At the household of faith, you know how to behave yourself in the household of faith," which is the uh, uh, Church of Living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Correct. You know, if, if you'd ask most people what's the pillar and crown of the truth, they'd probably say the Bible. Well, it actually was the church, and so you ask yourself, what church was that? And most of your most of your Protestant churches didn't even really exist uh, up until Martin Luther, when he broke away, you know, 500 years ago, and now you've had thousands upon thousands of denominations. So, which church would you say is the pillar and bulwark of the truth in all these autonomous independent churches? So if you go back in history, the pillar and bulwark of the truth was the church, you know, not the Bible. And they spoke infallibly, just like in Acts 15, where the Judaizers came up and said, hey, we got the Old Testament here. These men should be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. So what did they do? They spoke infallibly, called the consul and said, no. I know we got the Old Testament scriptures that said these, guys, these men have to be circumcised, but, you know, they, they spoke infallibly and said, here's our decision. Peter, James, the elders. Well, now, you, you obviously understand that we're going to agree with you that, that those inspired apostles of the first century were having truth revealed to them, mm-hmm. but the scriptures teach in passages like Jacob mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, including inspired knowledge and, and wisdom, would pass away when God's revelation to mankind was completed. We believe that is completed. As you said, the apostles in their lifetime in the first century were promised in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16 that they would be guided into all truth. We believe they were guided into all truth. All truth was revealed. Peter wrote in Second Peter chapter 1 verse 3 that God had given Past tense, all things that pertain unto life and godliness. 
And so we're in agreement that those that those men, as in that incident in Acts chapter 15, had divine guidance in in uh, uh, revealing and explaining God's truth. The question, the big question is, and I think this is this is what this would be the burden of you as a Catholic or other Catholics. The big burden would be for you to show that that is a continuing situation. In other words, a continuing uh, office or a continuing ability even to to do that sort of thing. Where would you go to the, in in the Bible? Uh, no, I'd, I would go to the Bible to say that that sort of op- ability has ended. Where would you go in the Bible to say that it's still possible and it's still happening? Well, now, there's no more scripture being written, okay? There's, there's no more inspired people writing scripture, and we both agree on that. Okay. But my, my point is this, uh, Matthew 16, Christ gave Peter the keys of the kingdom and his successors. So, uh, well, there's, there's where we differ, David. You added a word right there. He gave Peter and the apostles the keys to the kingdom of, but but you added the word their successors. That's not in the text, and the Bible doesn't teach that there was there were successors to those apostles. In fact, the, the scriptures would teach that it'd be impossible to have successors based upon the qualifications in Acts one that were given for uh, Matthias in order to be an apostle. He had to be with Christ while he was here on the earth, and certainly no one today could meet that qualification. That's true. Uh, historically. If you look at history, you can prove that there were successors of Peter, first four popes, uh, Peter, Linus, Anacletus, and the fourth one was Clement, it was one. So you could, you could find a whole line of successors. Uh, I guess they're numbering probably 200-something now uh, since the church was started. Well, we understand there are people who are making the claim to be apostolic successors, but the question is, what's the proof of that? In other words, I could claim to be, you know, the, the greatest basketball player that ever lived. You can claim anything you want. But if I made a claim like that, someone would say, well, we'd like to see the proof of it. What's, what's your proof that you're such a great basketball player? Well, well my question is, if, if, this, if this position that you hold, David, is strongly based upon the idea of apostolic succession uh, to give authority so that there are individuals who have authority to explain, uh, and actually they go beyond just explaining the inspired word. Uh, where, where in the Bible would we go for that? I, I tell you what, David, we had said we were going to keep you for 15 minutes. Hang on. I do have one question, though, David, and I, and I find it a little bit, um, a little bit ironic. Uh, um, you, you, you just, you were upset with the church deciding whether or not an elder needed to have one child or more than one child, leaving children or whatever. Um, and so you decided to go from the, then from that to the Catholic Church where there are bishops who must be celibate in order to be bishops, where the Scriptures clearly teach in First Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, that a bishop must be the husband of one wife. It seems to me, uh, David, that you just you threw the baby out with the bathwater and said, since we can't decide, then we're just going to ignore all of the qualifications for a bishop. Not necessarily so. Uh, that in the Catholic Church is not a dogma. It's more of a. Uh, there are Catholic priests who have well have come over into the Catholic Church and they were married, and they're allowed to keep their wife. Now, you know, as far as celibacy, 
those men take that as a vow of celibacy. It's more of a discipline. It's not really a dogma. And so... Uh, well, I've got a quote here, David, from the Council of Elvira, uh, Canon 33. It says, quote, It is decided that marriage be altogether prohibited to bishops, priests, and deacons, or to all clerics placed in the ministry. Whoever does this shall be deprived of the honor of clerical office. And that's, that sounds pretty dogmatic. I don't know. Uh, it may not may not meet the 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 uh, Catholic technical definition of a dogma, but that seems pretty dogmatic. You can't be in those offices if you're married. Well, like I say, there are some Catholic priests who are married. But it says all priests must, all bishops must be in First Timothy chapter three verse one. A bishop must be the husband of one wife. And uh, David, there are many bishops in the Catholic Church who the vast majority who are not a husband of one wife. So we're, we're, that's you know a direct contradiction. Hey, David, let us oh. take a quick break. We're going to come back to you. I, I, I'm, I'll apologize ahead of time. We said we try to limit our discussion with you to 15 minutes. We need a few more minutes because we, we've got a, a few questions that have come in that others of our listeners wanted to, to offer to you, and I want to get those to you and give you a quick chance to answer those. Uh, hang on. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back, uh, and, and we'll, we'll go to 830 with you. Hang on just a second. Thank you, David. All right. All right, we'll be back right after this. Enjoying the virtual Bible study? Email a friend during this break and tell them to join in on the discussion. There's more exciting Bible study after this commercial. I'm Greg Gwynn, a host of the Virtual Bible Study. Thanks for joining us for tonight's program. The Virtual Bible Study is presented weekly by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Each week on the Virtual Bible Study, we simply engage in the study of God's Word in an effort to better understand it, better understand how God views us, and better understand what He wants from us in our lives. We're not studying any creeds. We're not studying any books written by men. We're just studying the Bible. And we're trying to study the Bible alone without any of our opinions or wisdom mixed in. We're only interested in what our Creator has revealed to to us in his word. We realize that we're fallible and cannot direct our own steps. As a result, what we think or feel doesn't really matter. All that matters is what God has said. So that's what the virtual Bible study is all about. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Thanks again for joining us tonight, and we will hope you'll make plans to join us every Thursday night for the virtual Bible study. Hello, I'm Nick Law from Jennings, Florida. I love to listen to the virtual Bible study and hear God's word talk every Thursday night. Share your comment with the world. Call in now and be a part of the virtual Bible study. Now, back to the program. And welcome back to the virtual Bible study tonight. We're glad you're a part of it. We're happy to have David Stamberski from St. Louis, St. Peter's, yeah. Peter's, Missouri, on the phone with us. He is a former member of the Church of Christ and now has become a Catholic, believes that that is the correct way to be pleasing to God. And so we're getting his insight on it. David, David we had a caller call in from New Mexico but uh, didn't want to go on the air but had a question to ask about do you think the Pope is the, the the specific person who has the right to make the interpretations and understandings known? Is he is he the exclusive source of that understanding, or or does it go beyond him in the Catholic Church? Uh, the way I understand it, it's the Pope and the bishops in union with him. Okay. Uh, now the other question that this caller asks is, how do you? In other words, you you left the Church of Christ because you saw division among the churches division and confusion yeah uh the it is is well understood that catholics are divided on a number of subjects as well uh so how how do you explain that in other words you, you, well, you said that the solution to differences and division would be having a a centralized source of authority to 
sort of interpret and explain the Bible like the Catholic Church. How do you explain? Because it is well known that Catholics are not united on all subjects. Oh, that's that's true, especially American Catholics, and that's to their own demise. I mean, well, but that say, that answer that you just gave, David, is the exact answer that I would give to the question of why there's division among churches of Christ. It's a human failure. It's not a divine failure. It's a human failure. If we if we if we refuse to study and apply ourselves to the Scripture. And if in our pride and arrogance we refuse to submit to it, then that's going to lead to division. But it's not God's fault for making his will un, not, uh, you know, uh, impossible to understand. It's our failure to sub- submit to it. I mean, we're fallible. Uh, I, would, I would quickly uh, acknowledge that among churches of Christ, there's, there's division. There's no doubt about it. We're not hiding that reality. But we have a, we have a, a, a um, an ideal that we're striving for, and that is to follow the Bible in all points of faith and doctrine. And right. and uh, so, in other words, you left the Church of Christ to become a Catholic, but you didn't leave the reality of division when you did that, because the Catholic well, Church is divided too. But here's the difference, though. The difference is the Catholic Church has certain dogmas, um, certain teachings, and if you are a faithful Catholic, you will abide by it. Uh, say, for instance, uh, oh, communion, um, uh, contraception. Okay. Now, there's Catholics who'll say, "Well, I'm not going to do that." Now, you know, there's Catholics in name, just like there's uh, people in the Church of Christ who claim to be Christians, but they don't go by what that particular church teaches. And what I'm saying is, though, if a person deni- if a person decides not to, they're going against established authority. But in the Church of Christ, there there never was uh, something that was like, uh, as far like I, I said, ordaining uh, an, an elder or deacon. I saw arguing, and I saw you know people who could not get along in church splits because of that well so, i understand what you're saying but i still i still find an inconsistency in that because you're the, the very thing you just described also exists in the catholic church as well real quickly david we got a few questions let, let, let me get let david get, we'll just let you give an answer for these briefly and uh we'll just go we'll hit them in rapid fire here um uh, don in nashville emails and says i'm trying i'm not trying to characterize david because i know nothing else about him however i'm wondering if he used to be a devout member of the church of christ or just raised in that environment would you say uh, that well, when you were in the Church of Christ, you were devout in your in your religious practice? I would I would say so. Okay. I at one time I I considered becoming a preacher. Okay. And were you? Were, and uh, he also wants to know about the, your your wife. Was your wife a member of the church? Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, Jack in uh, Hampshire, Tennessee says, "How do you reconcile the need for additional revelation when Paul tells us in Galatians one verse eight, but if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed." And additionally, we read that the writer Jude tells us in his book verse three that the faith was once delivered. The Greek word used here is hafax, which means once, one time, as it is used in Hebrews nine twenty eight to indicate that Jesus died once to bear the sins of many. So if the faith was once delivered and we are sternly warned by the inspired writer Paul not to preach any gospel contrary to what was preached, in my mind there is no need for any other word other than what was delivered to the people during this time period. If you 
If whatever you profess here tonight is not found in the pages of God's Word, then I believe you ought to give serious consideration to your position as your soul depends on it. And finally, if God was willing to tell the readers of Revelation in chapter 22 that if anyone adds to this book, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book, I would lovingly encourage you not to add or take away from his inspired word. Bottom line is if you have not do not have the respect for the completeness of God's word, then you can just about do anything you want. Well, here, here's my question, though. There, there is not an inspired table of contents. So how would you know that those 27 books you have should be there? Well, that's a that's obviously a, a very deep subject, the question of the canon of the Scripture and the legitimacy of the of the New Testament documents. Uh, we've studied that before on the virtual Bible study and probably will again. We Obviously, we don't have time the to... The short answer to that question is first century Christians I, knew. Yeah, the, the I got, short... I, got, I have an answer for that. It was actually yep. Go ahead. the Catholic Church who decided... What books would I disagree? I, I I adamantly disagree with that statement. The the books the the Catholic conventions or conferences that discuss the canon of the Scripture really only endorsed what was already known by Christians. When those documents were written by inspired men in the first century, they were regarded as Christians as the inspired Word of God before the ink dried on the page. And the Catholic okay. the, the Catholic Church to come along later. And, and and sort of put their stamp of approval on it, didn't do anything to confirm the legitimacy of those documents. And you, you referenced first Peter chapter or second Peter second, chapter three sixteen. In Second Peter chapter three, you, you quoted earlier uh verse sixteen where it talks about the scriptures, but the, the verse just before that talked about the writings of Paul he says, uh, concerning our beloved Paul, according to the wisdom given to you, hath written unto you, as in all his epistles, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures. Peter referred to the writings of Paul and said they're scripture. Those those documents were known and understood. They were even, we, we understand from the New Testament, they were being circulated among Christians uh, in the first century. Can I get a word in? Sure, go ahead. Okay, but as far as a list, a canon, those books were not compiled. I disagree with that. There's evidence that the the books were actually being, that that, the the epistles were actually being compiled together as early as 115. Uh, The the Catholic conferences on that didn't happen until the 300s. Uh, 307, Council of Hippo and Council of Carthage, that they determined that these would be the books in the New Covenant. And then Martin Luther came along later and said, "Well, we're gonna—I don't like the Book of James. I want to take that out of it." And there was, there was books being disputed, like Hebrews, Revelation. Uh, well, the question of this question of uh, of the text continues even to this day. But I believe there's a strong case can be made for every book in the New Testament, and it's not because the Catholics said so, but because of the evidence, both internal and external. That supports their legitimacy. Hey, David, we've got a few more questions. Yeah, quickly. We're just about out of time. Yeah, quickly. Uh, and this may be uh, and Jack ask again. He says, is baptism necessary for salvation? Baptism is. Okay. Um, we could talk about the mode of that, and that would be an interesting discussion, too. Uh, let's go on to the next question. Why do you pray directly to saints? The Bible tells us God the Father is considered the only one to whom prayers may be addressed. It is further understood that Christ stands as a mediator between God and man, Hebrews 7, verse 25. All prayers, therefore, offered through Christ or in the name of Christ. And then that echoes a question we got from Jim in Mount Pleasant. Jim is a former Catholic who now is a member of the Church of Christ 
He says, since Jesus Christ died on the cross as the only acceptable sacrifice for sins of man, and it is it is the only blood, only by his blood that we have salvation from sin, why would anyone pray to a human being such as Mary, who is not divine, cannot intercede for our needs, and has nothing to provide for salvation for any man's soul? That would be no different than if I said, Greg, uh, would you pray for me? That's that's all the that's all the Catholic Church teaches. You're not praying to them. You are praying and asking them to intercede. Uh, people say, well, they're dead, but they're more alive than we are. Just like when Christ talked to Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, they were dead for thousands of years. You know that there's a real controversy over the question of whether or not Catholics worship Mary. Uh, most Catholics deny that they do. There's there's but I, I was just re- reading recently where there's been a number of petitions offered to to try and raise or elevate the position of Mary to co-redemptrix. I don't know if you're. Yeah, I, I the only thing that it means is is that she was uh, in cooperation with the plan of God by saying, "Let it be done to me as you have said." Real that, quick. That doesn't mean you know, that doesn't mean she was uh, uh, as far as a savior. No. Okay, real quickly, I got three questions from Patrick in Birmingham, Alabama, who interestingly made the same change that you did. He was once a member of the Church of Christ. He's now Catholic. He said he he, he would ask three off-asked questions. Number one, what was the easiest Catholic Catholic doctrine for you to accept, and why? Uh, probably uh, uh, the, the Bible and tradition. In other words, more than one source of authority. Because that's what had you troubled initially, right? Uh, a tradition, I mean, not tradition of men, but tradition yeah. that went along with the scriptures. Okay. Uh, Question two, what was the most difficult Catholic doctrine for you to accept and why? Uh, probably uh, one of them would be purgatory. I think I understand that a little bit better now than I did. Okay. Uh, why? Because it, it's not explicitly uh, taught, but it's implicitly taught in, in the scriptures. Okay. And number three, for you, what was the significant turning point, the moment when you said this this Catholicism might actually be true? I saw I saw a lot of reverence uh, people had while at mass. Um, a lot of respect. Uh, for the things of God, and I'm not saying all Catholics do, uh, but that really impressed me. Um, they do respect the Word of God. Um, you think? Would you argue that Catholics respect the Word of God more than members of the Church of Christ specifically? Well, I, I, I would not, I would not say that that that's probably true. You know, I think, I think they both do. Okay. But point of, the point of contention is fallible human beings compared to uh, the magisterium. Okay. I think uh, my phone's starting to go dead on me. Well, and we've we kept you way too long, David. Uh, we thank you for your time. I should have known that we couldn't cover such a broad subject in 15 minutes, so I apologize for that and appreciate you being patient with us and staying on with us a little longer. Thanks for thanks for participating with us on the virtual Bible study tonight, and thanks for for uh, being willing to share what you what your thoughts are. We obviously don't agree on a number of very important points, but we we do appreciate you being willing to explain uh, your thinking to us and to our listeners on the virtual Bible study. Well, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was okay. Thanks, David. All 
Thank you. Uh, All right. We appreciate, David, for being willing to be a part of the program tonight. We're long on a break. We'll take one, and then we'll take your comments. Uh, the phone line is open at 877-381-4567, or send your questions or comments to questions at collegeview.com. We'll take it to the top of the hour when we get back and discussing David's comments. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study continues right after this. Don't touch that mouse. The Virtual Bible Study will be back right after this. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's Bullet Point. There is no doubt that one of the conditions of our own forgiveness by God is that we forgive others who sin against us. Jesus said in Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15, If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. He also taught us that we should extend this forgiveness again and again. Notice in Matthew 18, verses 21 and 22, it says, Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus said unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. The question arises, though, about a situation where an individual is not interested in our forgiveness. They do not ask to be forgiven and may, in fact, continue the offending act against us. What should our response be in such a situation? Jesus gave valuable information about dealing with this problem in Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4. He said, Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. The teaching here clearly indicates that forgiveness must be sought before it can be granted. We must be ready to forgive, willing to forgive, even anxious to forgive, but until the offender seeks our forgiveness, there is no way that forgiveness can be accomplished. A moment of reflection will remind us that this is exactly the pattern that God has established for us to be forgiven by Him. He is continually ready to forgive us, but we must repent and seek His forgiveness before we can receive it. It's worth noting that the apostles realized the difficulty of forgiving a brother who continues to commit the same offense over and over. After hearing his command in this matter, the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. That's Luke 17, verse 5. It takes a strong faith to fulfill the Lord's will concerning forgiveness. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. My name is Cole, and I'm eight years old. My name is Thomas, and I'm seven years old. And our families love to listen to the virtual Bible study. Broadcasting around the world with truths that are out of this world. The Virtual Bible Study. Take it away, guys. And welcome back to the program. We're glad you're a part of it tonight. We look forward to you calling us at 877-381-4567 or emailing questions at collegeview.com. Dad, we need to remember or remind uh, our listeners that we do appreciate David for being willing yes, to be a part right. of the program. Yes, that's right. Uh, you know, and, but this is sort of our our history of these kind of interviews on the virtual Bible study. We're glad to talk to people who disagree, and we give them a chance to voice their position. I mean, I, I suppose some people think we should stop them at every interval and object to everything they say. That well, That's never been the way we do it because I don't think that that would be very productive in this format. We want to give people a chance to say what they think. Uh, and interject some questions along the way, but but obviously, and David knew that we would want to review what he said after uh, you know we excused him from the interview, and that's what we want to do here. Joining us is uh, Anthony Petrochko, a member of the church here at College View, uh, and he, he's going to uh, give some thoughts along this line. I think we've got a phone guest too, Jay. We do. Pat Donahue is uh, listening in Alabama tonight. He's on the phone. Pat, welcome to the program. Good to talk to y'all, Jacob and Greg. And, uh, Appreciate y'all's program. And uh, Pat, uh, we wanted to talk with you because you've uh, you've had some Bible studies with Catholics in the past, and public public Bible studies, public debates with them on some of the same things we talked with David about. And so we thought maybe you could uh, present some of uh, the arguments you've made in the past as well. So, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Pat. 
I was just going to say, I think one of the persons I had to, uh, I had a debate with has been on your program before, John Martinoni. Am yeah, I correct? Yeah, that's several years ago. We, we interviewed John yeah. and uh, had a good discussion with him as well. Uh, so, uh, Dad, uh, based on uh, our discussion with David, uh, some things that sort of jumped out at me, and the initial one was that it's just impossible for us to understand the scriptures. That that we can't we can't both look at the the same scripture and come away with the same understanding. Well, of course, uh, again, granted the fact that there is a lot of division in the religious world, people, all, a lot of people who all claim to be following the Bible come to different conclusions and do different things. We acknowledge that being the the reality. But I still maintain, and in, in, in our conversation with David and in a phone conversation I had with him earlier this week, I maintain that the, the fault of that is ours, not God's. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 3, uh, beginning verse 3, By revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote a four and few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. I believe that that God's word is perfect and understandable, and any failure to understand and apply it is ours, not his. And although David wasn't willing to acknowledge this statement, I think that his his position is basically uh, Casting off on God's ability to be able to reveal himself so that he can be understood. And, Pat, based on your studies with Catholics in the past, that, that is their understanding, correct, that that we've got to have someone to tell us what truth is, but we can't read the Scriptures and find it for ourselves. Exactly. When they see all the division out in the denominational world, they use that as proof that you got to have their leadership, magisterium, whatever you want to call it, to tell you what the correct position is. And, and the proof is the, the division they see. But uh, I think you probably have pointed out, Pat, uh, and Anthony, you were suggesting off camera earlier, there's a lot of division in the Catholic Church, even though they claim that they've got this kind of guidance and and, uh, inspired interpretation. Yeah, there is. You know, I was thinking of a verse, and I agree with, uh, I I couldn't tell if it was Anthony or Greg reading from Ephesians 3, but the reason... We have these uh, uh, divisions. It's not because we can't understand the Bible. Another passage, Matthew 13, verse 15, says, For this people's heart is wax gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, their eyes they have closed. And so, as, as Greg or Anthony said, it's, the, it's our fault that we're not understanding the Bible, not God's fault. And the Bible can be understood. Yeah, Jesus said in John eight thirty two, you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Didn't reference any way that we'd have to have something else other than the truth to understand it. Ephesians chapter five verse seventeen, Paul instructs, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Again, didn't tell us Anthony that we need uh, some type of of body to to help us understand that. Right, and I think that was good that you guys kept bringing that question up. You know, where's the scripture that would point us towards some sort of external uh, agency and I think, you know, if there were if there were some sort of external guidance that we were supposed to be getting, we know in the first century, as Greg mentioned, we had the apostles, we had divine gifts of the Holy Spirit. And they had signs to exactly. confirm. Exactly. Paul said, I, I had the signs of an apostle. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm willing to say, hey, you know what, if there is some agency, if I'm supposed to be following, as the Catholics would say, tradition in addition to the written word, okay, fine, then – if I were in the first century, I would be looking for the signs of an apostle for me to know that I should be following you. So where is that now? 
Okay, you know, so, so you'd have to have that. That's what the conclusion. I've I've listened to a lot of past debates and and thought about trying to work through this whole idea in my mind too of why someone would leave the Lord's Church to become a Catholic. And I keep coming back to the fact that if you're going to go outside of the Bible, then you've got to have some sort of external means of proving that I should listen to you. Why should I listen to the Pope unless he's working miracles? And As you said clearly, Anthony, in the first century when those apostles spoke by inspiration, the, the, the what they spoke was miraculously inspired, but they had signs of confirmation right. to accompany those things, and that was that was essential. I mean, why would you believe somebody teaching a new doctrine unless they had that sign or that proof that the miracles provided. Uh, David referenced Second Peter chapter 3, verses, verse 16, talking about people who are twisting the scriptures. Uh, it says, as also in all of his apostle epistles, talking about Paul, speaking in them of these things in which some things are hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. David's uh, assumption then was based upon the fact that people are going to twist the scriptures. And they're going to do that to their own destruction. That we've got to have the Catholic Church then because they're people that are twisting the scripture. But wait a minute. Peter, who he claims was the first pope, said that was happening while he was still living. And so, you know, if, if, the, if the solution to people resting the scriptures is we need a, a, we need a, a, a papal hierarchy in the Catholic Church, well, Peter's the one who said that. And that was happening in his lifetime. And he gave the solution in verse 17, and it wasn't the Catholic Church. He says, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. He's just saying, be careful what they're teaching, but he didn't say, you got to just listen to somebody out here. Hey, hey Pat, uh, 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 one of the questions that comes up is this question of apostolic succession. How, do you, how would you answer when you're studying with a Catholic and he says he believes that the Pope is is the the successor the rightful successor by apostolic succession all the way back to Peter as the first pope what's your what's your line of reasoning along those questions well i guess one of their main passages Greg, to try to prove this is in matthew 16:18 which says thou art peter and upon this rock i will build my church and they point out that the word the greek word for peter is is petros and they say, well, then the rock that he's going to build the church on is also the same word, but it's not exactly right. The, the word for Peter there is Petros, and the word for the rock there is Petra. And it, you know, if you take it to Spanish, you know the difference in the endings there. <laughs> but these words are different in gender. It'd be like saying, "Thou art Mr. Rock, and upon Ms. Rock I will build my church." It's a small rock versus a boulder, second person versus a third person. And if you go to Matthew 18, verse 18, you see that all the apostles were given the keys to bind and loose and not just Peter. There are a lot of things I could say, like, for example, Peter had a wife. We can see that from Matthew 8, 14, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5, but they won't allow the Pope today to have a wife. There are a number of things you could say. I was going to say one other thing about the understanding the Bible. You all mentioned about the passage about some things are hard to understand, right? Right. And it is true there are a few things in the Bible hard to understand. That doesn't say it can't be understood like the Catholic Church is saying, but hard. But most of the time, most of the time when we have a doctrinal difference, I'm not going to say every time, but most of the time it's not because the Bible is hard to understand. And here's, I illustrate this way in the debates I have. And in, in the county I live in, just a guess, 90% of the congregations, take all the types of the congregations would allow women to preach from the pulpit. 
It's probably the same in the county you live in, right, Greg? I would imagine. Probably about 90%. Right. All right. But there's a passage in the Bible that, at least to me, seems pretty clear on this issue. 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted to them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. If they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. I try to do a lot of personal work Bible studies, and I always, when we get to this, I ask them, is that vague or hard to understand? Every person I study with, and a lot of them are members of churches that allow women preachers, every one of them says it is clear. So to me, the problem, I think this little issue here illustrates that it's not, the problem is not that it's hard to understand this passage in 1 Corinthians 14 or other passages like Mark 16, 16. That's not the problem. The problem is, maybe I could say if I was going to be a little blunt, we don't love God enough to choose to do what he wants us to do instead of what we want to do. That seems to me a bigger problem than understanding the Bible. I think you're right, exactly right. 877-381-4567, questions at collegeu.com. Pat, another uh, uh, error that we see in the Catholic Church is the fact that the, that their bishops are m- mostly celibate. Maybe David cites some exceptions to that. Uh, but uh, what about the celibacy of bishops, Pat? Uh, how does that? Uh, how do we reconcile that with passages like First Timothy chapter three, verse one? <laughs> well, I should let you explain that because when it says that the bishop or the elder must be the husband of one wife, it would be hard to reconcile that. But it seems like, and this is what you're leading into, it seems like they're ignoring what the Bible says to make up their own rules. And you remember passages like Matthew 15, verse nine, and so forth, when. God is, uh, Jesus is talking about the Pharisees, that, 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 that their traditions of men overrule the commandments of God. It doesn't it seem like that's what the Catholics are doing in this instance. Absolutely, Anthony. You know, it says the bishop must be the husband of one wife. It's not an optional thing, and uh, they, at the very best, they've made it an optional thing. And at the, at the worst, they're binding that they must not be the husband of one wife. Right. I think it's interesting, you know, when you talk about this with a Catholic, they will say, well, you know, the Catholic Church doesn't forbid people to marry uh, it's a voluntary that they, you know, but I would say, well, if you become a priest and then you decide you want to get married, can you stay a priest? <laughs> the answer would be no. Exactly. So they are requiring it. But, but um, you know, I, th- I think the, the Catholics would say, well, you know, we the Bible is only part of the picture. Our, our The tradition and the church leadership have decided that bishops uh, shouldn't be married. You know, so but but what you've got there then, if if all three of those are equal, right. then you've got supposedly three equal legs of the, this three-legged stool by which they seek authority, but you've got them contradicting each other, right? Which which if they're all from God, then they wouldn't contradict, and therefore the conclusion you have to reach is they can't all three be from God. Um, if the if the Pope was this divinely inspired interpreter and explainer of God's will, then you would have to argue that the Pope would would be perfect in doing that, right? But, but Pat, I noticed uh, when I was looking at your website, by the way, your website for people who are listening who might be interested in looking at BibleDebates.info. Pat done a lot of debates on a lot of different subjects with a lot of, di- a lot of different uh, religious groups, and he's got a good resource at BibleDebates.info. And when I was looking there, Pat, I noticed you had uh, some examples of papal fallibilities, and one of them that I kind of caught my eye was a number of popes, uh, Pope Paul V, Pope Urban VIII, Pope Alexander VII, 
all condemned the notion that the sun is the center about which the earth revolves and the, and the error and heresy of the movement of the earth. Uh, Alexander VII actually signed a papal bull which was attached to the index of forbidden books stating and condemning all books which affirm the motion of the earth. Uh, and so uh, here are a number of popes who said the earth is the center of the universe, the sun revolves around the earth. And that was official papal position on that. If the popes were this inspired interpreter of the Bible, we wouldn't find those kind of fallacies. We wouldn't, I mean, that, that that's not in the Bible. In other words, we don't find the Bible. One of the amazing things about the Bible is even though men have advanced enormously in scientific understanding since the times when the Bible was written, the Bible doesn't contradict known or accepted science. And yet here's a case where the where the popes were way off base on the idea that the sun revolves around the earth. And, and that's exactly right, Greg. One additional point is the fact that, first, you're making the point that they were wrong about it. And how could they be infallible if they're wrong about something? But the second point is that now they've changed, and, and all the popes not only accept the fact that the earth goes around the sun, which is the truth, but almost um, all the popes in the Catholic Church accept ba- basically theistic evolution. I'm sure you know about that, Greg. Right, right. There's another little... Uh, to me, uh, it's one of my charts you've probably seen, Greg, that I think is kind of funny how it works, but I think it, it shows conclusively the popes can't be infallible. You have this pope, Adrian VI, that lived, he, he wrote this paper, and I think it was in 1522, it was in Latin, but it's been translated into English, and he said this in 1522, if by the Roman church you mean its head or pontiff, it is beyond question that he can err, even in matters touching the faith. He does this when he teaches heresy by his own judgment or decretal. In truth, many Roman pontiffs were heretics. The last of them was Pope John the Twenty-Second, for example. He says it is certain that the Pope may err in matters of faith. So, if you think, and this to me is sort of funny using logic. Pope, the Catholic claim is that the Pope and the Magisterium they're infallible in matters of faith, but Adrian VI said they weren't. He said they. They're, they're not infallible, they're fallible. They can make mistakes. So if Adrian the Sixth was right, then the Pope is fallible. But if he's wrong, that means you have a Pope that was wrong, so the Pope <laughs> is fallible either way you go. You see what I'm saying? That's right. And so to, to the position of, of our, our guest earlier on the program, David, who said we need this source of absolute uh, infallible interpretation and understanding, it's not there. I mean, in other words, there's ample evidence that the Catholics are as divided as others on a number of things. And so he said he left the Lord's Church because he saw people couldn't agree and there wasn't under there wasn't a, a uniformity of understanding. Well, we understand that. As we've said, we think that's a human failure. Uh, we're failing when that happens. But he hasn't gotten to a better place by going to the Catholic Church because the same thing exists there. And they... And as you pointed out, they change also. I'm going to go through one other interesting chart, and then I'll try to shut up. There's uh, something what the Catholics call, they call it communion under both kinds. And and all that basically means, since a lot of our listeners aren't familiar with that, is that communion under both kinds means you partake of the bread and the fruit of the vine at the Lord's Supper, whereas one kind means that the laity would only eat the the bread, okay, because they were scared that somebody would spill the fruit of the vine, and since it was... Because of transubstantiation, it was literally the blood of Christ. You'd be spilling the blood of Christ, so they didn't let the laity do it, okay? So in 1 Corinthians 11, 
Verse 26 and 28, it says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. So in the Bible, it was obvious that all the Christians ate the bread and drank the fruit of the vine. But now, the Catholic Encyclopedia, this is a book written by Catholics, approved by the Catholics, not, a, not a, a, an enemy of the Catholics. Volume 9, page 176, says, Communion under both kinds was a prevailing usage in apostolic times. So meaning, in the apostolic times, the Catholics were saying, all the Christians ate of the bread and drank of the fruit of the vine. Catholic Dictionary, page 202, Popes Leo and Galatius emphatically condemn persons who abstain from the chalice, meaning from the fruit of the vine. And I'm getting to your point, Greg, about them changing. And if they're changing, how could they be a, a good standard of authority? They're no better off than what they're claiming about us having the Bible only. Exactly right. Exactly. Then, in the life and times of the Roman pontiffs, it says, communion under both kinds was abolished in 1416 by the Council of Constance. So what you have is, if you go down through history, the Catholics say, in Bible times, they ate the bread, drank of the fruit of the vine. And they were so emphatic on that point is that these two popes said that people who did not drink the fruit of the vine when they were taking Mass, the Lord's Supper, that they were going to be condemned if they didn't do it. But then that was along came later, a few hundreds later than 1416, a few hundred years later, they abolished the communion under both kinds. And so they're changing. It's not some minor issue. They're saying these people were lost if they didn't drink the fruit of the vine. And then later they come along and say, it's abolished. You're not supposed to drink the fruit of the vine. Exactly. So and, me, and how can a changing standard be any reliable standard at all? Go exactly, ahead, Greg. Exactly right. And in our program tonight, David said that in matters of dogma, such as the communion, there's consistency. Well, you just you just gave evidence of the fact they have not been consistent, even in these matters of dogma. One other thing, Pat, and we're just about out of time, but he mentioned 1 Timothy 3.15, the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. I think that's a misapplication of that text. A pillar and a ground supports something. It's not the originator of something, but it's actually the support of something. The church upholds and supports the truth, but it's not the originator of the truth. I think you're exactly right. It's not the originator. It's not the truth. It's the pillar. And and as you know, the congregations, as we call them churches of Christ, we are a pillar. We're pillars of the truth because we support the truth. We we support it financially. We get out and teach individually the best we can. You're exactly right. Saying something is a pillar of the truth and saying something is the truth or an originator of the truth is two different things. I was going to say, if they wanted to say it was the source, they could have said the source or the fountain or there's plenty of other or, words that could be used. But I think or the it, author. Like, remember Hebrews 5, verse 9, Jesus is the author of eternal salvation. Right, and I think real quick, the, their definition of the church is very different from the biblical definition of the church. The church in the New Testament is the collection of its members. Um, but the church to the Catholics is the, uh, the um, bureaucracy of the church. Exactly. So uh, the church in the Bible does not look anything like the Catholic Church. We uh, we got several emails that we didn't get to. We're out of time. Uh, we may try to deal with this more. We might even try to deal with it more next week if it looks like that would be appropriate, Jacob. We might deal with this right, some more next week. We are running out of time. But... Uh, Pat, real quick, thanks for being with us on the program tonight. I think you've got a debate uh, coming up pretty soon. Real quickly, tell us about your debate, I think, next week. It's in Florence, Alabama. It's on Monday and Tuesday night. And it's on divorce and remarriage. The guy I'm debating, he, he claims to be a gospel preacher. Greg, you would have heard his name before, Olin Hicks. But right. he basically says, he says, well, divorce is bad, but marriage is never bad. So whatever marriage you're in, no matter how many times you've been married, 
you should just stay in it. And um, he thinks he's going to claim the scriptures teach that, and and I believe, as you do, that Matthew 19, 9 and other passages teach that if you divorce for any reason other than fornication or remarriage, adultery, and you can't just keep on committing adultery. you got to get out of it. Right. That's an important topic. It's next uh, uh, next week, next Monday, Tuesday night. And, Pat, people can go to your website, BibleDebates.info, and get all the details on time and location. Yes, and then if they're not able to come, within a, a few days or a week, I'll put the audio up on the website, and they can listen to it there. Okay. Thanks, Pat. Thanks for being with us tonight. Enjoyed it. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank thanks. you. And, Anthony, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for the time. Well, we're a little over time. We've, we we appreciate all who are listening. It's a it's a topic of great interest, obviously. We had a lot of listeners tonight and a lot of involvement. We didn't get to all of our emails. We may try to do a follow-up next week, cover some more of these topics a little more thoroughly. All right, and thanks again to David for being a part of the program. Yes, David. Thank David Stamberski in St. Peter's, Missouri. We appreciate his willingness to talk, even though we disagree. Hey, we, we've got to talk about our differences or else we'll never resolve. Exactly right. All right, thank you for being a part of the program tonight. We hope you benefited from our discussion. We look forward to you being a part of the program next week. And in the meantime... We encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired word, the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the virtual Bible study brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.